6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his conclusion on the book of James. Well, this is our concluding session in our study of the book of Yaakov. The book of Jacob and his letter to the 12 tribes. I love to frame it that way because our first timers are wondering where in the Old Testament is the book of Jacob? No, it's in the New Testament. The book of Jacob. It's Yaakov in the Hebrew and it's of course James in English. Book of James, indeed written to the 12 tribes. And I'm very grateful for this session. We've had an opportunity over the last seven sessions to go through the book of James. It is a book that is widely misunderstood. It is a book that through a superficial passing through of it seems to be quite different than the presentations that we're so used to from the Apostle Paul. And uh, I want to deal with that. I think the epistle by James is clearly part of the scripture. And one of the things that I hope we've gained over the last seven sessions is a perspective of the integrity of the whole. And by the whole, I don't mean just the book of James. I mean the New Testament, how it fits in. It's not contradictory. It's complementary. And I think uh, we uh, hopefully have emphasized that. And I want to review just a few things tonight. But I also want to prepare you for some potholes. One of the things, potholes in the road ahead. One of the things we try to do is not only illuminate by a little background or, what, or cross-referencing, what have you, uh, the word as we go through it. I also at least aspire to trying to arm you against the kinds of traps and uh, potholes that Satan would put before you regarding the word of God. Now, the epistle to James, uh, we, we believe that this was written by that James, which was the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Uh, uh, we'll talk more about that before we're through, but let's recognize, let's set aside some of the traditions and notice from the scriptures, we went through this, that the names of his brothers and sisters and so forth, they're alluded to uh, in the scripture. And obviously, their uh, younger Christ was the firstborn, but there were brothers uh, and sisters, and you could say half-brothers and sisters, because obviously they didn't share the same natural father. But uh, anyway, uh, there, there are four Jameses we'll talk about. But the, the James that is the brother of our Lord is widely understood by most competent scholars as the author of this epistle. Now there's two major views as to when the epistle was written. And this is by way of review, but it'll, uh, it'll pertain to some of the observations I want to get into shortly. We know the epistle was not written later than 62 A.D. Now, following the reign of Festus, which was from 60 to 62 A.D., there was a brief lull in the Roman authority. Before the new Roman governor, Claudius Albinus, he took full, before he took full control. In this short period, 
a conspiracy led by Annas the Younger, the son of the high priest Annas that we all know about, illegally arranged for the execution of James in A.D. 62. So if we're correct in James' authorship, and I think we are, then clearly could not have written been, been after the A.D. 62. There are implications of this. The execution of the popular James. Remember, he was, he was the leader, in effect, of the, uh, the council in Acts 15, you may recall. He was very prominent in the early church. And his execution may have been a key element in the rebellion that followed that ultimately led to the Romans' destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In other words, he murdered 62 A.D. In the coming years, there was an uprising, that uprising, uh, uh, the rebellion, and its a subsequent quelling by the Roman army led to the famed collapse uh, uh, of uh, Jerusalem from 66 to uh, 70 A.D. Now, that's one view and a very, a very defendable view. There is an alternative view that is also defendable, and that is that he wrote the uh, epistle right after Pentecost, very early, uh, perhaps after the scattering that's mentioned in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 8, first few verses. Now, if it was written later, the epistle may have been to correct a misunderstanding bordering on antinomianism uh, on the part of some who were pushing Paul's teaching to an extreme that Paul never intended. That was going on, and some people feel that uh, James's letter was a response to that issue. Antinomianism is the view that by faith and God's gift of grace through the gospel, a Christian is freed not only from the Old Testament law of Moses, uh, but all forms of legalism, but also from all law, including generally accepted standards of morality prevailing in a given culture. That was an extreme view. And some people have taken Paul's emphasis on grace and so forth too far. And, uh, and James is an offset or a balance to that. And that was written later in his career. That's a defendable view. Now, if James's letter was written during Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, you may recall, that could explain why uh, James does not mention the name of his dynamic friend. Uh, for that would endanger Paul even more. So all this makes sense if you really lean on. Now, of course, to whom was it written? It was written to the 12 tribes. And we talked about that in earlier studies. Ten tribes are not missing. That's a myth. But I won't start on that one tonight. It's written to the same people that First Peter. Peter wrote his first letter to, the 12, the 12 tribes. Now, James does include about 60 imperatives within the 108 verses, more than any other New Testament book. And some people as they go through the book of James, see it as just a collection of all these imperatives. Don't do this and don't do that. And, and that's missing the thrust and his organization, which I hope, if we've done nothing else in our last seven sessions, that we've tried to uh, give you the flow of that. Don't just carry away the do's and don'ts, but to develop the perspective that James had. The key doctrine throughout the epistle of James is faith. But the faith, as he presents it, has a different emphasis or coloration, if I may. We know the sinner is saved by faith from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The believer must walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Without faith, it's impossible to please God from Hebrews eleven six. Whatever we do apart from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23 tells us. So these are all familiar precepts to anyone that studied the Word of God. But in spite of that, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the nature of faith. It is um, amplified by the world. They aspire to faith as an abstraction. Having faith in a falsehood is, not, is, a, is a path to destruction. Just having faith. Faith in what is the critical thing? 
But there's also an attitude even within the church that faith is somehow, and it's, it, and it's also supported by the culture, that faith is sort of accepting something in spite of the evidence. And that's wrong. To accept something in spite of the evidence is irrational. And our faith is rational. And scripture emphasized that. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith, James points out, is obeying in spite of the consequences. Big difference. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. And um, where everybody misunderstands James is that he points out that if you have real practical saving faith, it will manifest itself in works. He doesn't say you get saved by works, but he knows your faith by your works. And so uh, one of the, the questions that James deals with, what kind of faith saves a person? He mentions three different kinds of faith. Is it necessary to perform good works in order to be saved? James says yes, in effect, not because those works save you, but if you've got a faith that saves, it'll be evident by your works. If you have faith, you claim, if you profess Jesus Christ, and your life isn't improving, isn't changing, something's wrong. That's what James is trying to get across. Now, he, talk, he talks about three kinds of faith. The first one, he talks about dead faith. Well, in chapter 2, there's just a little review from chapter 2, but it'll, it'll, I want to bring it out because we're going to explore a few things here. In chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can that kind of faith save him? These are people that he's talking about that who claimed they had saving faith but did not possess salvation. John Calvin said, It is faith, it is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. It's not the works that save you, but the works accompany the faith. Faith without authenticating actions is vain. I love a bumper sticker that was suggested. You know, as a, if you were indicted to be a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? That's James talking. And uh, Jesus says, Yea, man, we say, Thou hast faith that I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That's his rebuttal. Mere intellectual assent is not enough. One may know the doctrines of salvation and yet has not, may not have submitted himself to the lordship of God. That's what James means. Three times is faith without works is dead. Now the second kind of faith, I love this because it really gets the point across, is uh, he, he really wanted to shock you. He said, uh, you believe that there's one God. You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. He's saying the devils go further than you do. They at least tremble. There's not a demon in the entire universe who is an atheist. Think about it. <laughs> Some of them have better theology than we do. They believe in the existence of God. They're neither atheists or agnostics. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They even witnessed of him. Whenever they met Christ, he was, when he's on the earth, they bore witness to his sonship. A whole bunch of verses, they're all in the notes. They knew and they acknowledged the place of ultimate determined. They recognize Jesus Christ as the judge. They submit to the power of his word. They know more about their theology. It's probably better than ours. Are they saved? Of course not. So you just touch their intellect. And uh, they believe and tremble. Hmm. By the way, it's not a confirming experience to tremble. <laughs> Demons do that. A lot, of, a lot of ministries are emphasizing experience. That doesn't save you. Your heart can be stirred and so forth and all that. 
But true faith saving involves something more, is what James is hammering away. And, of course, that leads to the third form of faith, which is the dynamic faith. that involves the whole person, the emotions, the will. Uh, the mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will acts on the truth. Then he used some examples of Abraham and others, and I won't go through all that here. Now, what I want to do, I want us now to stand back. We've had a chance through seven sessions to explore the epistle of James. It may surprise you, but I don't want you caught by surprise to discover that there are some pseudo-scholastic materials on the landscape. Some have been there a long time, some are new ones, but they're somewhat the same kind of heresy that involves James. And I want to talk a little bit about a couple of topics that seem to have nothing to do with James, but you'll see where I'm headed ultimately, trust me. (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about the Shroud of Turin. How many have heard of the Shroud of Turin? Okay, good, all right. You might turn with me to Mark 15. Let's just start there. Mark 15. Mark 15 is Mark's record. It's actually probably Peter's record. Mark was... Probably Peter's amanuensis or secretary. He's really recording Peter's chronicle here. And uh, in Mark 15, we have a crucifixion. Let's pick it up about verse 42. And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, who also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been uh, any while dead. And when he knew it from the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, what this doesn't record, and I I can't go through this without sharing with you some extra-biblical insight that uh, Chuck Smith gave me. Uh, Joseph Arimathea, of course, he went boldly unto Pilate. You didn't just do that. You and I couldn't do that. This is a demonstration that Joseph Arimathea was a very, very powerful figure. He had direct access to the personal representative of the ruler of the world in that area. He's probably one of the wealthiest men in the area. The second thing we know from Roman and Hebrew law is that he was the next of kin, because that was the one that was responsible for disposing of the body, even if it was a criminal execution. But what the scripture doesn't record here is Pilate's complete amazement. He said... uh, Joseph, I don't understand. You've got this brand new tomb, never before been used for your family, and you're going to give it to this criminal? And Joseph says, Oy vey, it's just for the weekend. (laughs) I have it on good authority from Chuck Smith that that's a... I can't go through this passage without sharing that with you. But we pay up verse 45. When he knew it from the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in the sepulcher, which had been hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. And so ends the chapter. Now, one of the questions, of course, because is this whole issue, is the Shroud of Turin, as it's now called, legitimate? And there are many, many opinions, very diverse opinions by very, very competent people who studied carefully. There is a tradition, an ancient, ancient tradition, that that linen shroud was carried by Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus happens to also be one of the four Jameses, but Thaddeus is his other name. That's the way he's commonly listed. 
In the year of crucifixion, Thaddeus is said to bring this shroud to a town called Edessa, which is modern Urfa in eastern Turkey. And the, the cloth of Edessa shows up in the ancient records as early as 525 A.D. There was a major flood at the town of Edessa. One-third of the population dies. About 30,000 people died in that flood. The emperor Justinian orders the reconstruction of the town, and in the reconstruction process, they discover the cloth of Edessa that had been hidden by the Christians years before. About 787, Leo the Lector of Constantinople refers to the Edessa cloth at the Council of Nicaea. So this cloth of Edessa shows up in very, very early records. In 944, the cloth of Edessa arrives at Constantinople. Gregory, the archdeacon of Hagia Sophia, delivers a sermon. From details in that sermon, it matches, it seems to correspond to the what we know as the Shroud of Turin. In other words, it's the whole body. It's not just the head cloth. There are a lot of issues that it, that 944 sermon uh, seems to resolve. In the year 1130, Ordericus Vitalis recorded what's called the ecclesiastical history, and he makes reference to it. And there's other references in the, in the 12th, 13th centuries. It's on display in Constantinople in the year 1203. But it then disappears in the sack of Constantinople by the Crusaders. And it disappears then for about 150 years. But in 1355, it reappears in Lyrae near Troyes. And in 1389, it's mentioned in a memorandum. I won't, go through, I won't go through the whole list. But it's about 1578 that the shroud moves permanently to the town of Turin. Now, what is this thing? It's about 14 feet long. It consists of a very special kind of herringbone twill of linen, cloth, and it bears an incredible image of a naked and bearded man, about six feet tall, hair in a loose ponytail, back apparently scourged with a multi-thonged whip, hands crossed before him. Now, in 1978, coming out of modern times, there's a whole history of the shroud, but I'll spare you all that. In 1978, Two dozen scientists from the United States, from Switzerland, and from Italy. They performed a battery of tests. They used tape to lift pieces of material from its surface. and they, they, Their tests included uh, photo and electron microscopy, uh, x-rays, spectroscopy, ultraviolet fluorescence, thermography, or infrared, chemical analysis. The findings... The first of all, they came to the conclusion that no way could this be an artist having done it somehow. Uh, they got into the whole physics of the, of the strange imaging that's on there. And I'm, I'm, I'll spare, give you the short form of all this. But basically, they concluded that the shroud had come in direct contact with the body and that the blood that's implied was real blood. The idea that it was the work of some kind of cunning artist was dismissed for a number of reasons. Now, one of, if you're interested in this background, one of the guys that has written the most competent, extensive books is a guy by the name of Eon Wilson. He's written at least three books on the Shroud. When you read his books, you'll discover he's very thorough, not biased. He presents very, very, uh, he does a remarkable job at getting into all the issues. And in fact, the technologies that you go through are, the diverse issues are incredible. 
Roman graffiti is involved, the, the BP-8 image analyzer, the chrysale or monochrome gray kind of painting techniques, the feeding habits of the ibis, the musculature of the brow, the existence of the twill and the herringbone weave as an ancient Israeli uh, form of linen. All these things are, are dealt with. But the main points are the blood flows... The nails are through the wrist, not the hand, as naive people have always talked about. We know for a lot of reasons it was through the wrist. The eerie three-dimensional aspects of the image all seem to support the issue that it is an authentic burial shroud. That part seems to be beyond competent debate. The image is only one fiber deep with no discoloration below. The application of acids or pigments would not achieve that kind of delicacy. Fiber-by-fiber microscopic graduations, even within a single thread, which makes up the image has very strange, exquisite uh, shading, it defies having been done by a human hand. Now, the experts have concluded that the blood is real blood, that it came from a man who died under trauma. The chemical analysis and telltale yellow-green fluorescence under, under ultraviolet light indicates the presence of a remains of a slightly different substance, the fluid exuded from blood clots. This substance is invisible to the naked eye and was unknown until the 20th century. So the point is the idea that it's some kind of a hoax is dismissed. So that's part A of the story. But before I go on, I'd like you to turn with me to Numbers 21. In Numbers 21... We have an episode while Israel was wandering in the wilderness in which um, people were rebellious. In verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and against thee pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. And here the term implies brass. Brass was the metal in that culture that could sustain heat. So brass things represented a resistance to fire. And that's why Levitically, those things in the tabernacle that dealt with real fire, like the brazen altar, were brass. Gold was only inside. It was used differently. Brass is synonymous with judgment or fire, in effect, Levitically speaking. But anyway, make me a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of bronze, he lived. Strange, strange story when you think about it. Because... If God's going to save the people, great. Why did God resort to this rather weird code? It's a code. What's a code? It's a set of symbols. This was a symbol. He made a brass serpent, put it on a pole. If you looked at the pole, you were, you, you know, you were healed. If you didn't look at the pole, sorry, sayonara. God, you know, in other words, he asked you to do something. It was simple. So that's the story, and it may, you say, what's going on here? Fortunately, the most competent commentator in the universe has given you the explanation. Turn to John chapter 3. The Bible is always best interpreted by itself. In John chapter 3, 
the number one teacher in Israel, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. And in the conversation that ensues, we learn that he is the teacher, not a teacher, the teacher in Israel. And this is, where, this is the famous passage where Jesus says, you must be born again. In fact, uh, this is important enough. Let's just start at verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the womb a second, in his mother's womb a second time? Obviously he knows better. That's his way of getting across the question. What do you mean? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said he must be born again. Where the wind bloweth, where it willeth. Thou hearest the sound of it, but cannot can tell from where it cometh and where it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus said unto him, Art thou the teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know and testify to that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. In other words, the guy is standing in front of him. And then you get to this enigmatic verse 14. Jesus continues, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now verse 16 I think you're probably familiar with, right? (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And on he goes. Now we all remember John 3.16, but verse 14 leads up to that. And the model that Jesus presents to Nicodemus, a well-trained Jew, is draws upon that experience from Numbers 21. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking literally here now. Literally. You say, well, gee, it's a symbol. Yes, but is he speaking literally? When everywhere in the Scripture that a prophet of God re- interprets the Scripture, it's always literally. Always literally. And Jesus is raised up literally. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.